Welcome to Booksmart, a podcast where we read and share books that have a positive influence on our daily lives. Whether it's self-improvement, success, or something fun, we're here to help you read your way to a better you. I'm Em. And I'm Melissa. And this week, we're reading Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World by Cal Newport. Before we get started, here's a brief summary of this week's book. Digital minimalists are all around us. They're the calm, happy people who can hold long conversations without furtive glances at their phones. They can get lost in a good book, a project, or a leisurely walk or run. They can have fun with friends and family without the obsessive urge to document the experience. They stay informed about the news of the day, but don't feel overwhelmed by it. They don't experience fear of missing out because they already know which activities provide them meaning and satisfaction. Best-selling author Cal Newport gives us a name for this quiet movement and makes a persuasive case for its urgency in our tech-saturated world. Common sense tips like turning off notifications or occasional rituals like observing a digital Sabbath don't go far enough in helping us take back control of our technological lives and attempts to unplug completely are complicated by the demands of family, friends, and work. What we need instead is a thoughtful method to decide what tools to use, for what purposes, and under what conditions. Technology is intrinsically neither good nor bad. The key is using it to support your goals and values rather than letting it use you. This book shows the way. So Em, why did we read this book? A coach that I'm working with recommended this book to me, and I was getting ready to go on a 10-day vacation, about six days of which I was going to be traveling totally alone. And I was nervous about spending that much time alone after having just finished an intensely busy period of work. So I was worried that I wouldn't be able to switch gears and fully relax into the solo travel and the vacation in general. And my coach told me about this book's chapter on solitude as a way that our brains can declutter and generate new ideas, solve problems, and reset our experience of how we enjoy our lives. So basically, I wanted to embrace digital minimalism as a way to maximize my creativity, productivity, and live my best life, which, as it turns out, is exactly what digital minimalism is all about. How about you? Why did you want to read this book with me? Well, you talked me into it. Um, (laughs) I like that you mentioned the solitude chapter. I'm excited to talk more about that. But I had read Cal Newport's earlier book, Deep Work, and I remember really liking it. And it was a couple of years ago, but we learned more about becoming a craftswoman and, you know, how to cultivate what he calls deep work. And I didn't know too much about digital minimalism before you brought it up, but I did know that my Kindle kept recommending it. So that had to mean something. (laughs) If technology is telling you to read digital minimalism. I know. I I hadn't thought about that. It's a sign. Follow the light. (laughs) I do think though it ended up being a really timely read. Definitely. So I'm excited to talk more about it. So let's open the book and get started. So Melissa, you mentioned that you were familiar with Cal Newport as an author from reading his book, Deep Work. And a key principle in that book is eliminating distracting technology while getting in the zone to produce good focused work. But when Cal was promoting this book, he found that people would keep asking, how do we do this in our personal lives too, not just in their work lives? And people were telling him that technology was draining meaning and satisfaction from their time spent outside of work. And that was really the impetus for him to start digging into this phenomenon, technology taking over our lives, both in work and outside of work. Mm -hmm. 
I think a quote that immediately struck me in the first section of this book is when Cal said, we didn't sign up for this. Yeah. There's so much technology around us these days, and I think it's easy to assume that, oh, if you can't get off your screen, it's because you're lazy or you're not that hardworking. But the truth is that he says billions of dollars have been invested to make this outcome inevitable. And before we get into that, kind of flashback to when the iPhone came out in 2007, it was initially built to just be an iPod that could make phone calls. The concept of this like supercomputer in your pocket was not the original intention. And he says technology just sort of happened to us, like we seemed to stumble backwards into it. But I really had lost sight of that original intention of the iPhone. I think nowadays it's easy to assume it was always intended to be this tiny computer in your pocket, but that's really not the case. Right. Yeah, he said similar things about the iPods, iPhones, smartphones in general, and even the original (laughs) thefacebook.com. Their intended purposes were all much more modest than the power they eventually all garnered over our lives and in the like daily inner workings of our lives, how expected these things are as part of our lives. Mm-hmm. The truth is that behind the scenes, this was no accident at all. Right. A lot of companies have really spent time, attention, figuring out how to get our attention. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of companies really benefit from getting our attention. So if they did respect users' attention, it would reduce revenue for them. So that's kind of the first aha that I don't know if a lot of people have thought about is that we aren't just, you know, mindlessly succumbing to technology and things have just happened in this way. It was not a serendipitous event. It was calculated and people have spent time and research figuring out how to claim and keep our attention for dollars. Exactly. I think Another incredibly powerful stat that goes along with that idea is that we spend an average of two hours per day on social media and the related messaging services. So two hours a day. That's crazy. That's insane. So we thought, okay, yeah, an iPod, great. We'll just listen to music. An iPhone, great. We'll be able to call our loved ones or our kid can text us when they need to be picked up from soccer practice. But two hours a day is so much more than convenience. Two hours a day. That's 14 hours a week. Yeah. Think about how much you could get done with 14 more hours a week. <laughs> I immediately thought, binge watch a season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's like, it's insidious. <laughs> but it's intentional. That's right. what we're learning. Right. Something that really kind of punched me in the gut was this quote from Bill Mayer at the end of Real Time, the show, in May 2017, where he said, The tycoons of social media have to stop pretending that they're friendly nerd gods building a better world and admit they're just tobacco farmers in t-shirts selling an addictive product to children. Because, let's face it, checking your likes is the new smoking. Yeah. Cringe. Yeah, yeah. I think he ended that monologue also with Philip Morris wanted your lungs, the app store wants your soul. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God, I underlined it. I think I wrote OMG, and then I instantly posted a picture of that to our Instagram account. Oh, <laughs> oh the irony is so I good. I know, but that like that was a punch in the gut for me too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is not just about it being a convenient tool or something that can help us in our lives. It's part of how we live and breathe and interact with other people. It's all-encompassing. And we tend to kind of gloss over the bad parts because there are good elements of social media, like seeing people's baby photos and puppies and all that good stuff. But 
They are what he calls reasonable excuses, Mm -hmm. and we'll dive into that a lot more in a bit. But the fact is that that word addiction Mm -hmm. was a very intentional choice. Mm -hmm. And historically, addiction was really only about maybe substances, even gambling could be considered an addiction. But the definition that Cal uses in this book is that addiction is a condition in which a person engages in use of a substance or in a behavior for which the rewarding effects provide a compelling incentive to repeatedly pursue the behavior despite detrimental consequences. Yeah. Mic drop. Mic drop, right? So it's not just about drugs or even just about gambling. Internet addiction is now considered an addictive disorder at the extreme. And you listeners probably don't have the extreme of this, but it's becoming very real. Yeah. And we can all relate to, if not addiction at its most extreme, those little the pull to check Instagram. When we see a text come in, we may not like know that it's important, but we still want to check it. We still want to read it. So it it really does drive our reactions, our behavior. And we know from you know reading other books about habits, like uh, Atomic Habits, our episode on that, that there's a dopamine hit that we experience um, when we interact with technology in this way. What's fascinating is that in Atomic Habits, we talked about how you can choose and build right. habits or break habits. But In this case, the technology companies are choosing how you build habits, perhaps without you even noticing it. And what really drove this home for me is he says that tech companies get you addicted with intermittent Mm -hmm. positive reinforcement and the drive for social approval. Yeah. So intermittent positive reinforcement means effectively that you're not getting a like at the same time every day. Right. It's kind of like if you go to a coffee shop every Wednesday and there's always free cookies. The first time it's a surprise, but then it becomes just an expectation. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a positive dopamine hit. But there was an example with um, pigeons. You can read more in the book. But when they gave them yeah. intermittent, unpredictable frequencies of rewards, their joy – I don't know how they measured pigeon joy, yeah. but it went <laughs> up. <laughs> and it's kind of similar. So the way that when you get likes on an Instagram post, that's – you know your tribe approving you, which Mm -hmm. is something we're biologically programmed to crave, but it doesn't come in in a predictable way. So you're kind of always checking and always wondering, am I getting any like, am I getting that dopamine hit? Seeking out more of it. Mm -hmm. I think the real kind of twist of the knife is that no matter how many likes we do or don't get, it never feels like enough. Right. Like imagine when you go on social media, have you ever had the feeling that, you know what, this photo got exactly the right amount of likes that I was looking for, and I feel satisfied. No, I was, as you were starting that sentence, I was thinking, satisfaction. Do I ever feel truly satisfied when I close out of Facebook or log out of Instagram? No, I don't think so. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. satisfaction and like experiencing wholeness in my life is ever a feeling I get as a result of using social media. No, and imagine if you post something truly meaningful, like starting a new job or right. engagements or babies. These are all things that are regularly posted about. Is there such a thing as enough likes for your newborn child? (laughs) You know, like it's just an unfathomable concept. How do we measure? How do you measure the right number of likes? It's it's never going to feel like enough. It could always feel like you should have more. Right. And that's an addiction. That's a cycle where you're constantly going to go back and keep checking. And technology companies know exactly what they're doing. And they want you to keep coming back and they're succeeding. Yeah. So many of us feel like our relationship with technology is sort of unsustainable as it is now, the spending two hours a day. It's manipulation of our mood feels worrisome. Sometimes it makes us feel inadequate or we experience that comparison syndrome. We feel sometimes excluded from social groups. And so what Cal says is 
Our willpower isn't enough to override the addictiveness of technology's design and even the strength of the cultural pressures to use these technologies. So what we need instead is a full-fledged philosophy on technology use, one that's rooted in our deep values, that provides clear answers to the questions of what tools you should use and how you should use them, and equally important, enables us to confidently ignore everything else. And that is getting at his formal definition of digital minimalism. So digital minimalism is Cal Newport's philosophy of technology. It's the one that he's spending the book sharing with us and then explaining how to implement. So his definition of digital minimalism is a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. I love that word happily in there. It looks Mm -hmm. like the light at the end of the tunnel. It is. And I think it also alludes to a bigger philosophy within the philosophy, which is that this is not about cutting back the way that a lot of, he later references, like American diets are all about like cutting things out. This is really about choosing what you value. Right. And because you've focused on things that are important and meaningful to you, missing out or the FOMO effect of everything else just kind of falls away. Right. Yeah. This is not like cutting carbs out of your diet. Exactly. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's knowing what's important to you, figuring out the best way to incorporate technology so that it supports your pursuit of those things, and then just not worrying about the rest because you're already building a life that you want. Mm -hmm. I think I originally saw the title of this book and thought it might be about minimalism, the way that people only own 37 objects. and Restrictive. It's very restrictive. And I think minimalism in other aspects can mean different things. But just in case you're listening and already kind of wondering, oh, is this guy going to make me chuck my phone and live the life of no technology? That's definitely not where this is going. This is a philosophy of technology. So it's all about how you can use technology in a meaningful way versus not using it at all. Exactly. Yeah. I will say he pointed out that new technology must pass a very strict test if you're choosing to adopt it into your world. So digital minimalists take things beyond just, does this technology support something that I value? But instead, they notch it up one more to say, is this the best way I can use technology to support my value? And I thought that was a really new mindset that I had never really considered. Yeah, I really loved that. As a tiny, tiny example, um, recently I've been realizing that I really want to track the books that I'm reading, not as any sort of pat on the back, but because I always forget titles and authors' names. And especially when it comes to fiction, I always want to have a bookshelf full of fiction. And so I was realizing, I think I need a technological solution of what I want to keep track of, which is authors, titles, and why I liked the book. And so I instantly just went into Goodreads to think, okay, is this the right platform for me? And I can't write personal notes in that. Mm -hmm. So I don't want somebody to see my review of the book. I want to be able to only see it myself. And so it was like, all right, that's not the tool. What is the, what's another app that can do it? Then I went through like into the rabbit hole of the app store, looking (laughs) at all these technologies. And I know there's one out there probably that's, and it's not the notes app on my phone because that's really cumbersome to keep a list. But my value is that I want to be a reader who always has great fiction to read at the end of the day because I like that's a quality, high quality leisure activity, which we'll talk about in mm-hmm. uh, later in this episode. But I don't know how to do that. And I know technology is going to help me, but I have to really be intentional about how I'm going to use it. I think what's smart about your approach is that you figured out why you wanted to track your books 
Because without doing that, I don't think you could have easily learned why Goodreads wasn't the right fit. Yeah. I really like Goodreads. I only use it to track book recommendations Mm. because you can just put things on shelves. And when people say, oh, have you read this book? It's really great. I can just search for the title and kind of pin it. Log it. Yeah. Exactly. But I had the same thing as you where I actually do track the books that I read. And I just use a Google Sheet. Yeah. Because all I needed was a way to figure out I read this book. It was by this author. I read it in this year. And then I give it a rating. Yeah. Because it's hard for me to later on remember. And admittedly, I totally adopted this strategy from a friend. But then on my phone and my notes app, I keep little notes about the books that I liked. And so I do have my own approach. But what's critical is that Goodreads didn't work for me either because I don't care about sharing. Exactly. This is just a practice for (laughs) me. And so I was able to move that technology to the side right. because it's not serving my best way right. to use technology for this. Yeah. And it's easy to see how we could then end up having three or four different apps for oh, different yeah. purposes. And like mm-hmm. that is, that makes my head hurt just thinking about it. I just want to read fiction. I know. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great example. And I'm sure that people listening as you hear the rest of this episode and even next week when we get into part two, there are so many little questions you can ask yourself, not just does the technology do what I want? But is this actually the best way that is serving me? Right. There's one quote that Cal says that I think really sums it up. He says, the sugar high of convenience is fleeting and the sting of missing out dulls rapidly. But the meaningful glow that comes from taking charge of what claims your time and attention is something that persists. Something about that comparison to a sugar high really stuck with me. Yeah. A lot of technology is really shiny and new and exciting. And there's a joy, I think, at least that I get about playing with a new tool and kind of Mm -hmm. seeing what it can do. And especially when it's a social platform. Yeah. Like we were just talking about Goodreads and that connects readers to each other. Mm -hmm. But certainly any social media platforms or even Venmo. I never understood why Venmo has a feed about seeing other people's purchases. It's so weird. It's so weird. But I think that the goal is that you feel like you're connected Because otherwise your app or your phone really is just an object in your own hand. Right. So part of the reason why they're successful, I think, is because they are connecting you. And that sugar high, again, like the like button. And if you imagine seeing likes or notifications, the sugar high comparison for me really stood out. But just like a sugar high, it's so fleeting and the crash is so real. And Yeah, the crash doesn't feel good often. Mm -mm. Yeah. What I liked about that quote as well is he says like that all dulls in comparison to the meaningful glow that comes from taking charge of what claims your time and attention, that's what persists. To me, that made me think again of Atomic Habits and this idea of like reinforcing the identity you want to have as a point of pride and how when you feel really good about who you are and the choices you're making, that is what persists in your life and what keeps those habits staying strong. Yeah, absolutely. I did continue uh, in this quote and throughout the book thinking about healthy habits. Yeah. There is a good, I think, metaphor with the way that you treat your body and the health with exercise and food, this meaningful glow, the way that when you put time and effort and thought into your own health, that sugar high like is not what's going to serve you in the long run. So it was really maybe not surprising that his approach to digital minimalism is very reflective of the way that we talk about health. Oh yeah. To me, it's like intrinsically linked. They're very similar. Yeah. And the language in the book is very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And how can we, if we're taking time away from technology, I guess we could find other detrimental ways to spend our time, but it sort of makes sense that when we have all this extra time, we spend it doing things that we like or that bring us closer to other people that pursuing good health. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And like pursuing good health, the answer is not a fad diet. (laughs) It's also not to eliminate anything 
all at once and forever. It's about something meaningful that will be a lifelong choice. Exactly. Which I think moves us nicely into some principles that he offers. That's right. Cal offers three principles of digital minimalism. And before we share, let's take a quick break. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com booksmart and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com booksmart to get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. Of course, we recommend you use your free book to check out Digital Minimalism, but you can choose any book you'd like. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com booksmart. Again, that's audibletrial.com booksmart for your free audiobook. All right, Em, do you want to share the three principles of digital minimalism with us? Yes. The first principle is clutter is costly. Digital minimalists recognize that cluttering their time and attention with too many devices, apps, and services creates an overall negative cost that can swamp the small benefits that each individual item provides in isolation. The second principle is optimization is important. Digital minimalists believe that deciding a particular technology supports something they value is only the first step. To truly extract its full potential, it's necessary to think carefully about how they'll use the technology. And the third principle of digital minimalism is that intentionality is satisfying. Digital minimalists derive significant satisfaction from their general commitment to being more intentional about how they engage with new technologies. This source of satisfaction is independent of the specific decisions they make and is one of the biggest reasons that minimalism tends to be immensely meaningful to its practitioners. I think these principles summed up a lot of things quite nicely. And something that really stood out to me here was when he mentioned that instead of measuring your efforts by money earned, you should measure by how many life units, like time and attention, you have to sacrifice to earn that profit. So I think one example he gave is that a lot of people argue that they need a Twitter account for whatever reason. Follow the news, keep up in your profession, make connections, whatever it might be. And he says, you know, although having a Twitter presence may lead to opportunity, how much time are you actually putting into Twitter and is it worth it? Like imagine maybe you do end up making one connection on Twitter. If you're spending two hours a day on social media, which is 14 hours a week, every single week, and you've made only one connection over the course of a few months – Think about how many hours you really put in to make that one connection. And there must have been a better way. And how great was that connection to make all that time worth it? Right. I think it's easy in the moment to imagine something like Twitter as a great way to make connections. Mm -hmm. And I hear a lot of people in my life talking about it in that way. Like Instagram, a great way to keep in touch with what people are up to or a great way to this or that. Right. But isn't there a better way? Couldn't you reach out directly to somebody who was interesting to you or reach out directly to a friend to catch up or get those baby photos or the new puppy pictures? There must be a better way. Yeah. And most likely your relationship or the results of whatever that relationship will be will be deepened or more significant because of that like high quality type of connection instead of this like willy nilly sharing with everybody on social media. That Twitter example really stood out to me too. He said... 
Um, if you think about spending 10 hours a week on Twitter to like, quote unquote, learn interesting things and make connections. What if you spent instead just a few hours going to like one new talk each month to learn something interesting and then committed to meeting three new people while you were there? Like, what would the results of that be versus all of the time you're spending on Twitter? It's kind of crazy to think about. And I think that's why the principle clutter is costly yeah. really sums it up nicely because it's not just about what could happen to yeah. you while you're on Twitter. Instead, right. if you imagine all the time that you're spending on Twitter or yeah. wading through all of the definitely nonsense, occasionally yeah. funny tweets you're seeing, that clutter in your life is costing you because the yeah. time you're spending there could have been time spent elsewhere. Yeah, that idea, he says, the minutes of our life are arguably the most valuable substance we possess. That to me was like, says it all. It's like, how do I want to intentionally spend the minutes of my life? It's like existential stuff right there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> mm -hmm. The Twitter example also hints at why optimization is important. The, the second principle mm -hmm. where it's not that Twitter couldn't do what you want it to do. It's just probably not the best way. That concept of what is the best way, I think, is a recurring theme about digital minimalism, something that we should always be asking. Absolutely. And of course, we already touched on uh, how we would intentionally spend the minutes of our lives, which is that third principle, intentionality is satisfying. When we're deciding the ways we want to engage with the world or learn through our own agency, that feels amazing. Yeah. Imagine taking a step back. If you had a whole day and nothing planned, yeah. would you choose, you know, I want to spend my time on social media? Oh my God. I know. I feel so awful when I end up even just spending like a couple hours on the couch at the end of a night, somehow scrolling through Instagram, like doing, it's really doing nothing. It feels awful. Mm -hmm. But it's on such an autopilot at yeah. this point for a lot of us. Yeah. And that's why next up, we want to talk about the digital declutter process. Yeah. So the recommendation in the book is to put aside a 30 day period during which you will take a break from all optional technologies in your life. And the goal is to explore and rediscover activities and behaviors that you find satisfying and meaningful. And it's not permanent. At the end, you do reintroduce the optional technologies into your life, but starting from a blank slate, yeah. as long as it's something valuable that serves you and that you have a specific use in mind about how this technology is going to bring value and to benefit you in the long run. Yeah. When kind I, of a terrifying concept I know, up front to most people, maybe. I know. When I first – and I think I'm going to do this. Yeah? Like, I think I'm actively already doing this, but I'm afraid to say that I'm currently doing it. Oh, I'm excited to learn more um, about that. But, yeah, the idea of reducing all of the technological clutter in my life and actually changing my habits is a little terrifying. Um, but he says – Thinking that we can gradually change doesn't actually work well. Like the engineered attraction of the attention economy combined with the friction of convenience like will diminish our ability to change those habits until we just backslide where we started from, which is feeling like we're in a place where our use of technology is unsustainable, but we feel powerless to change our behavior. So it's just like a one big loop of trying and failing and giving up and then trying and failing and giving up again. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about willpower earlier in this episode right. already, but he really does recommend this extended break because unless you've detoxed yourself from yeah. that very addictive pull yeah. of your Instagram feed or whatever else your go-to tech yeah. is, it's going to be hard for you to reform that relationship. Yeah. And that's why the step back is important. And he does mention these are optional technologies. Like he's not recommending that you right. stop using tech that you would use for work. 
Obviously, things like texting for most people would be very hard to eliminate entirely. So you would need to define for yourself what are the things that are optional versus things that you could continue to keep. But probably more things are optional than you think. When you really think about it. So that's the first step of the digital declutter for 30 days is to first define your rules. So to recap, the three rules of the digital decluttering process are one, define your rules, two, take a 30-day break, and three, reintroduce technology. Cal does want to make one thing very clear. The goal of a digital declutter is not just to take time away from intrusive technology. During your month-long process, you must, as he says, aggressively explore higher quality activities to fill in the time left vacant by those optional technologies you were avoiding. So the goal within the 30 days is to experiment and to try new things. And by the end of that 30-day declutter, you hopefully have rediscovered the type of activities that generate real satisfaction for you in your life. So this is not a detox and just kind of an avoid everything time period for you. It's really about exploring and finding other things instead of just saying no to everything. Right. Right. Because if it's just the detox, then you're just going to add all of those old technology habits back into your life at the end of the 30 days. But through this process, you're replacing them with activities that feel like they're adding meaning um, and fun and excitement into your life. Mm -hmm. So here's the big question. How do we fill that time? What is a higher quality activity that we might use while we are digitally decluttering? Well, stay tuned next week when Em and I find out in part two, practices. Before we go, here's the bookmarked activity for you to try, which we will both also be working on for next week's episode in part two, the practices of digital minimalism. Of course, we're going to challenge you to start thinking about whether a digital decluttering is right for you. Can you see a need for taking a break from the optional technologies in your life? If so, when would you want to start? In the next week or so before our part two episode, start defining the rules of your digital decluttering. Which technologies will you declutter? Which are truly optional? Begin developing a list of banned technologies as well as operating procedures for those you still need to use by specifying exactly how and when you will use them. Thanks for joining us this week. To view the complete show notes and learn more about digital minimalism, visit booksmartpodcast.com 14. We've also included our top takeaways and the bookmarked activity for easy reference. Once you've read the book, we'd love to hear about it. Let us know if you're planning a digital decluttering or if you had any aha moments by emailing us at hello at booksmartpodcast.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 929-515-BOOK. That's 929-515-BOOK or 2665. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, you can support our show by providing us with coffee. For as little as $5, you can fuel Booksmart and us while we make new great content for you. In addition to coffee, this also helps us cover necessary podcast costs like equipment and audio production. No pressure, but we really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us in this week's episode of Booksmart. Until next time, happy reading.